BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! Well, I'm Buzz Knight, and this is the Taking a Walk Podcast. Music history on foot. Love if you would uh, leave us a review like Big League Rick did. He said, this guy, Buzz Knight, goes really deep with his guests, and he's actually taking a walk with them. It's like eavesdropping on a private conversation. Well, thanks, Rick. We do love in-person taking a walks, but sometimes we have to revert to a virtual walk like we will on this episode. So if you listen, you know we love documentaries. We had Spencer Proffer on in a past episode of Taking a Walk. He's a great Uh, documentary maker known for uh, Chasing Train, among other uh, great docs. Previously, also John Scheinfeld, who uh, did the recent Blood, Sweat and Tears documentary, and he was on Taking a Walk. So on this episode, we're going to chat with Larry Locke. He's got a new documentary called Heaven Stood Still, The Incarnations of Willie DeVille. Now, if you know who Willie was, You're going to dig this. But if you don't, I think you're still really going to be equally fascinated with the unique personality of Willie DeVille. We'll talk to Larry Locke next on Taking a Walk. Well, hi, Larry. Thanks for uh, being on virtually on Taking a Walk. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's uh, great to be here. So tell the audience who this guy William Paul Borsi Jr. was, otherwise known as... Willie DeVille. Billy Morrissey, a.k.a. Willie DeVille, was a kid who grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. He's a working-class Irish kid. 
um, who grew up in a town that at that time was very much an industrial, kind of typical Rust Belt, northeastern U.S. Uh, city. But he was uh, someone who didn't really fit in in the world that he grew up in. And um, I think part of his childhood was a process of him trying to figure out exactly who he was and how he could uh, express himself in a way that he needed to do. So he's a kid who basically reincarnated himself. He reinvented himself into this character, Willie DeVille, who loved primarily rock and roll music from the 1950s and who channeled that music to create something that was very unique to himself and managed to have a 35-year career under the radar for the most part in the U.S., but he became quite famous in Europe. In fact, he toured all the way up until 2009, 2000, you know, 2009 in Europe and was still drawing 1,500 to 2,000 people a night. Yet here in his own country, he's almost incredibly, entirely unknown. Well, um, I would say coming out of the radio business that, uh, that I came out of, um, is it fair to say he had an East Coast following, uh, certainly New York, Boston, uh, and then a West Coast following as well? I think that's very true. He lived for a while in San Francisco before he came to New York, and he always then had an audience for himself there. And in L.A., he recorded a good number of his later records in L.A., so he definitely had a following there. And he worked with a man named Jack Nietzsche, who's a famous uh, music producer and uh, composer for motion pictures. He won one Academy Award and maybe even two for his music work. And so he had a following there. And he also had, he lived for a long time in New Orleans, and he had a kind of following there. Certainly, musically, he had a following there. So, yeah, kind of in these odd little pockets of the country. Well, your take on Stanford, Connecticut is very personal to me as somebody who grew up there, uh, the area uh, nearby, Belltown. I lived uh, in that area at one time. Uh, and I know uh, this quote of Willie's where he says, people in Stanford don't get too far. That's a place where you die. <laughs> I mean, um, you are in Norwalk right now. Is, is that where you grew up in that Norwalk-Stanford corridor? No, I'm from the South, actually. Um, but what happened was when I was in graduate school, um, we lived, my wife and I lived for a brief period of time in um, Springdale in Stanford, and I was commuting into the city every day. And so part of the lure to me about Willie was that when I sort of read about him and realized um, where he had grown up, I had a kind of bead on him. You know, I kind of knew the neighborhood, and by then I had met a number of people who had lived there forever. And so I had a sense of um, kind of, in some ways, who he was before he created this character for himself. And so that was very intriguing to me about how this kid from that particular area, in Belltown, of course, that's where he actually grew up. Um, that really sort of registered with me. And so I thought, how did he do this? How did he come from this place? How did he form himself out of, you know, of these materials he met in this world? Now, Stanford, of course, was always a little bit, as you know, of two places. It was both a kind of industrial town, but it was always a commuter town for New York City, too. So it was split halfway between people who worked in factories and Willie's mother, of course, worked in a factory and halfway between people who were executives actually and worked in New York City during the day. Well, you really nailed Stanford uh, in particular, this uh, this place called the Avon Theater 
which uh, is also very familiar because that's where everything kind of shook up in Willie's world uh, when he first saw uh, West Side Story. Can you talk about that? Yes, very much. Um, you know, I think oftentimes with artists and, and, and a lot of people who uh, in the world who go on to do things often have some sort of seminal experience they can call, you know, they can recall in their minds where something clicked, something changed from one place to another. And I think for him, it was definitely seeing West Side Story in the theater at that time when it was such a huge thing. It's hard for, I think, people to even comprehend how big a deal West Side Story was to people when it came out at that time in the early 1960s. It was really kind of a revolutionary film. And I think you know, this is something that I've sort of learned about that I didn't really know before was that in the world of that time, especially in the suburbs, people were sort of divided up into two camps. One camp was called the Greasers, basically people who sort of took from that era that we know from the 1950s. And then the other world was the Preppies, they call themselves, which are essentially people who are, are much more sort of normal track people who would go on to college be your class presidents, et cetera, have a certain, and, and there was a kind of a uniform to it, right? Greasers, of course, wear more and more leather, black leather. They had their hair greased in pompadours, et cetera, whereas preppies were much more the 60s style, wearing the sort of, you know, typical kind of uh, button-down shirts, khaki pants, et cetera. And so Willie definitely identified himself as a greaser. And Willie was, um, he, he often thought of himself as black Irish. I don't know if um all your audience understands what it means to be called a black Irishman. A black Irishman, they call themselves the descendants of the uh, Armada, Spanish Armada, that, you know, went down off the coast of Ireland in that war. And some people swam to shore. And those, those people then, of course, bred with the uh, Irish people. And they created what were darker-skinned Irish. And Willie always thought of himself as that. And I think the Phil Lynott, lead singer of Thin Lizzy, also identify himself that way and so he and willie became friends later but that was also so willie thought of himself as a bit of what we call black sheep as well so you know he, he so he really played on that idea of the if you look at the pictures of him in high school and there's a couple of them in the film you see him like in a class picture of say in eighth grade and he just looks different than everybody else and he purposely dresses himself differently so already he saw himself as a counter to his classmates etc and west side story put that on fire like he totally identified with the, the Puerto Rican characters, not with the, the white characters in the film. And that became um, really, for the most part, he embodied that character for the next 15 to 20 years of his life. Well, the, uh, the documentary goes deep into the relationship with uh, uh, his wife-to-be, uh, Susan Burrell, otherwise known as Toots, uh, Toots, I, I guess I should say Toots, um, who I was familiar with as well because I had the opportunity to see Willie perform uh, in New York, and uh, we knew about Toots from uh, the record label folks. But uh, talk about how you explored the life of Toots and Willie. Well, you know, it's funny. They both... They both were in some ways, I wouldn't call them like misfits, but they were outsiders. I mean, Tuss was adopted, right? And um, so she was raised by um, a very successful um, person, a, a man in the textile trade who lived, they lived in North Stanford, and she was a boarding school child. Like, basically at a certain age, she was shipped off to a boarding school in Western Massachusetts. Willie and Tuss actually met in a sixth grade. 
So they knew each other even as like 10, 11, 12-year-olds, but then she was sort of ostracized for a good number of years. And then they re-met when Willie was, uh, had quit school, but was back in Stanford in the later 1960s through the behest of one of Willie's friends, Linda Nafee. And they evidently, you know, met and were married like in two weeks. It was like a boom, boom, boom thing. And I think, you know, they were soulmates. And I think that um, they were both looking to be artists. I think Toots very much thought of herself as an artist. I think um, the visualization, I mean, it's funny when I've talked to a lot of people over time, especially from the CBGB days, um, they found Toots to be as fascinating or more fascinating than Willie in a lot of ways. She had an edge about her, a little bit danger about her. She was notorious for carrying a switchblade. Um, she was extremely jealous of women who would, um, well, he was a very good looking guy. So obviously he's a front man of a band and women would also, you know, they would certainly um, make their move uh, on Willie. And she was very defensive and she did threaten more than one person or, you know, to cut them basically with a knife that they got too close. And I know Chris France talked uh, forever talking heads thing. They, um, drummer, he talked forever about and um, how, you know, people uh, say, she'll cut you, man. Look out, she'll cut you. So she, she in some ways was as famous in those days as him. Um, she was ahead of her time in the way she looks. Um, she very much, uh, you would say that uh, she's sort of Amy Winehouse before there was an Amy Winehouse. Um, both of them pulling from the, um, you know, the Ronettes, et cetera, from the early 1960s of Beehive Hair. She wore nose rings before even the punk era. Um, but at the same time, she had the really dark ruby, uh, red ruby lipstick, a.k.a. the 60s, early 60s girl bands. So she was a combination of these things she put together. She dressed Willie very much a lot of the way that Willie looked um, in the early days with the purple suit and the tie and the pompadour. To a large degree, was her creating that image with him. Um, she believed in him a thousand percent. And I don't think, I'm not sure that Willie would have ever broken free of of the early days in Stanford and New York area, if it wasn't for her. I think she put him on the road. As one uh, woman in the film, Linda Nathy, said, she pushed him. And so a lot of what happened with Willie was really, Twitch, I think, pushing him along, even helping him a little bit with lyrics, et cetera. And um, so I don't think you could really have a Willie DeVille without a Susan Twitch DeVille. Listen, I was in awe of Willie when we uh, got to do the backstage uh, meetup, but I was frightened of of toots. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to lie. You know, she's, I think, aside from that, she had a very course, all of us are much more complex than we appear. When she was off and she um, trusted you, she was a very sweet, almost motherly-like character. Like band members talk about the fact that she would, you know, very much like mother them, like always make sure that their suits are, are right and their clothes are right. And so she had this other very nurturing side as well. But, you know, I think the other part of, you know, she was a classic Jekyll and Hyde um, character in that sense. But it's funny, um, a lot of the band members loved her very dearly. And there are a lot of people who, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just the other side. I think that side of her was like, I don't wouldn't say it was purposeful. I think that was really her too. But I think she was both. I think she was both. And of course, you know, they struggled with addiction and that didn't help things either. Well, um, how do you decide to take on such a complicated, talented, uh, diversely interested 
uh, character in a documentary? Well, I think, you know, you always think about these things in terms of um, a question. I think that art in general is essentially uh, almost a, every piece of art is built around a certain question. The question to me was, how could somebody this great be so unknown still in this country? And I think um, when when he passed away in 2009, I read the obituary by William Grimes in New York Times, and it was a really in-depth obituary. And I had lived um, for a good while in Athens, Georgia. I had gone to undergraduate school at the University of Georgia. And so I was very much aware of music, especially in the 1980s, because a lot of the people who the REM and some of the other bands from that era were actually, you know, neighbors. And so we were very much in that world. And I felt like I had a pretty good knowledge of, um, of music of that time. And I remembered him from Minkdaville early, but I had totally lost track of him over all those years. And even my memory was, was um, faded and it wasn't ever strong to begin with, really. So when I read that and I read about the fact that not only did he have, he was, an, he was sort of like the, uh, a character, you know, like the Forrest Gump character. He's kind of like in every little world. You just didn't know it. I mean, I didn't realize he had written the theme to The Princess Bride. I, you know, who knew? I mean, people, I think, for the most part, thought that was Mark Knopfler, but it was Willie. And not only that, he didn't even write it for the movie. He wrote it for his second wife, right? I mean, he was at CBGB, and, and yet you didn't really remember him from CBGBs, yet he was one of the major bands, Mintaville at CBGBs. And then he had this incredible, like, 30-year career in Europe where he sold a million records, had these huge hits, was a star. Everybody knew him, and so it was this dichotomy between these worlds, and I thought, this is an incredible story. I mean, this is a story, you know, there are not a lot of um, untold stories in music anymore. And and he was one that I thought, here's a real untold story. I mean, and not just um, like somebody who, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, or he was really great. I mean, he was a great untold story. So it then became, why is he an untold story? And that's really where it started. And, you know, it's a 10 year process. Well, the label really didn't know what to do with him. They were uh, working him at various angles and clearly could not find an entry point. I guess if you think about it, somebody who, you know, had the personas of uh, everything from a Latin street crooner uh, to a fairy tale prince uh, to a riverboat gambler uh, to a border jumper. Um, he is marching to his own beat, you have to admit. And I think, you know, it's funny. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that's what really was appealing to me. Because, you know, um, so much, especially in this country, it, we're sort of a consumer culture. And to a large degree, music is packaged not that much differently than any other consumer product. Not always the case, but often the case. And I think from Willie's point of view, what Willie was saying, I don't know if he's saying it consciously or he, if he can even help it, because I think Willie very much would have liked to have been more famous. I don't think it was sort of like, he was like, well, I don't care. I don't think he could. I don't think that, I think he, to get Willie, you have to walk to Willie, right? Willie's only going to walk to you so much. And I think it makes you think about how you should look at art in general. To me, it's like, 
you as an audience member have a certain responsibility to walk to them because if you do that, you're going to get an experience that you can't predict. Otherwise, you're getting experience you already kind of know, you know, and I think from Willie's point of view, that was, I don't know that Willie consciously was that way, but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't not do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And of course, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. And also, it wasn't just he was so virtuous. I mean, Willie could be lazy. Willie could, you know, he had issues. There were lots of other things, too. It wasn't like one story. But in the end, what makes Willie great, and I think why Willie is so beloved by so many famous musicians, is that he stuck to his guns. He did exactly what he wanted to do for 35 years. And, um, and that, despite all his foibles, to me, makes him a great story. Yeah, you referenced the uh, Savoy show uh, in, uh, in New York in 1981. And my recollection of that show was, um, like I've heard of other Willie shows, um, he came out about 45 minutes late, I believe, um, put on a spectacular performance that uh, was uh, energizing and spirited. And uh, I remember um, it ended at about 11.30, and there was this hubbub uh, in terms of picking up, you know, all the instruments and everything for the next act, who only had 15 minutes to get uh, his whole band and everything together, and that was James Brown. So, <laughs> for the midnight show. I didn't know that. That's a story I didn't know. Talk about some of the songs uh, which you highlighted, because what that's special that you brought these songs back, certainly to my memory, and I think to others. Well, I think I wanted to kind of do, you know, the film is a chronological story of his life, and so I was really very much looking for what I thought were the best performances um, and for songs that meant something to him at that certain point in time. Obviously, Mixed Up, Shook Up Girl, um, is still, I think, overall the most popular song that he ever made. And the song that I think still has, I don't know, has a certain resonance even to younger audiences. I'm surprised in a lot of ways that some younger person hasn't done that. I know that, you know, Boss Cags did it a few years ago um, as a remake, and people have done it. I think Dennis Brennan sings it in Boston at times, right? He's, you know, but but I think that's a song kind of right to be done by somebody new. Spanish Stroll, obviously, it's funny when we had the premiere. Um, in London in November, a Spanish Stroll was a hit in England, and um, and a lot of the audience that came out, and it was a packed house in London. And Willie really was only famous for a few years in England. Um, I could have I could have ended the film after we opened the film with a performance of that song. We could have walked out after that because they were jumping in their seats. I mean, it, it still was resonating with them. And, you know, so those songs, of course, at the start, um, I wanted, obviously, to have something from Le Chat Blue. Le Chat Blue was the record that really, in a lot of ways, maybe Willie's most artistically ambitious record, right, um, that he went to Paris to make. And he had many songs from the great songwriter Doc Thomas, who wrote Viva Las Vegas, um, Save the Last Dance for Me, etc. I wanted, of course, to have... A performance, and for me, use the Savoy show, we use the This Must Be the Night because it's just a joyous song. Joyous, and you know, as, as um, the great Tom Jurek writer in the film says, you know, incredibly, completely romantic in a 
totally non-romantic era. And for people who do remember, it was a very cynical and dark period, the late 70s, early 80s. And most people were reacting with rage. And here Willie comes along with the total opposite approach, right? Which is this idea that there can indeed be romance and love within a dark and cynical world. And these things are worth holding on to. So that's what we wanted to do there, obviously. And then, of course, we sort of follow his career. Obviously, we wanted to touch on storybook love because storybook love and the princess bride for people who are of a certain age especially say they're born after 1975 in this country the princess bride is their wizard of oz i mean it's a really important film to them and it's sort of like they should know that this song which by the way is still one of the top 10 wedding songs in the united states they i mean people know the song but they don't know anything about who he is and that he had actually written it not for the movie it was written for his wife, Lisa, which goes to show you that Willie was, again, living in this kind of world of movies, living in his head, this sort of, again, another incarnation where he used them as a way to create music. Um, and he would also, if you see the film, he wouldn't just sing the songs. He looks the part. And not only does he do that, that's what he really looks like during those times. It's not like he's putting it on for an interview. If you watch him on the street, this is what he's looking like. I mean, he totally became these characters over the years. And that's, again, who else does that? Who, I mean, who's ever done that? Now, obviously, New Orleans, um, if you know anything about Willie, then you know in some ways that New Orleans saved his life. He went down there and realized that in a lot of ways he had been chasing something that was just not going to work out for him, which was essentially be the next Bruce Springsteen or whatever, which a lot of people thought he could be and sort of were pushing him to try to be. In New Orleans, he just became Willie DeVille. He took advantage of his great, soulful voice to channel these, this great music in a way that makes it seem like he lived there forever. And that, in a lot of ways, re reinvented him. And then from there, of course, he he got another big record deal in Europe and redid Hey Joe. I mean, for anybody who's never seen that, I mean, it's funny. It, it's really striking. He does Hey Joe in a mariachi style, which is totally off the wall. But by the way, it sold a half million records and became a him. In fact, it was the biggest hit of his career. So again, going in another direction, just listening to the voices in his own head. You know, and that continued all the way until the end of the film. And I think in a lot of ways for me personally, the Willie DeVille, when he's kind of a broken down 50-something-year-old person with lots of ailments, is maybe the best Willie. I think when he sings at that trio where he's stripped down, he can't hide behind a band, it's just him in front of the audience. The music, you know, as Willie went through his life and had all these incarnations, there were people who accused him of being a poser, you know, as if he wasn't really legit. But truthfully, when you get to the end of the, his career and he's singing in that show in Berlin, up there with those two players, totally stripped down, you realize that the music and the artist are really one. He has become the songs he sings. His life embodies the music. And as Peter Wolf has said many times over the years, that's a sign of a great artist. The great artist is you can't tell where the music ends and the artist's life begins and because it's one. And that, I think, Willie became. I think Willie always wanted to be that, like a true, authentic blues artist who 
lived the life and sang the music of the life. And it's exactly what happened to him. And that's why I think in a lot of ways, he's, to me, he's greatest. His life, it was something that became transcendent. You got some great sound out of uh, Pete Wolf, my brother from another mother. I love his, uh, his, his quote. Uh, he says, there's a mystery about Willie DeVille. When you get it, it's atomic. It's huge. Um, I want to congratulate you on Heaven Stood Still, uh, the documentary about the incarnations of Willie DeVille, uh, Larry Locke. Thanks for being on Taking a Walk. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. And um, wish you a happy summer and hope to see you down the road and hope everybody has a chance to see the movie. Um, as it comes around to their town. And if you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. We appreciate you checking out Taking a Walk. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women.